Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy, who's worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal political organizations. I've also had the opportunity to live outside the US for a number of years, which I think puts me in a good position to comment for my American audience on some events of note going on outside the country and to interpret for my, I'm pleased to say, growing non-American audience just what the hell's going on in American politics. In a number of podcast episodes I've addressed, or at least complained about, some structural flaws in American democracy, from gerrymandering to voter suppression. In this episode, which is actually going to come out in two parts, so I guess in these episodes, I'm going to be talking about some solutions to at least a few of those problems, and I'll be joined in doing so by Julia Bryan, the current global chair of Democrats Abroad, who, when running the organization during the 2020 elections, oversaw a more than doubling of the overseas vote. As a lot of her job involves managing work to help people overcome obstacles to voting, she's very plugged into efforts to make it easier for Americans to cast their ballots, and is thus a great person to talk to about this. Full disclosure, I've done some work with Democrats abroad myself, so I'm not exactly impartial when I say that I think Julia's fantastic. But before we get to those solutions or that conversation... I'm going to indulge in my own take on a somewhat rambling, Rachel Maddow-esque preamble, though I would never presume to be as cool or as polished as she is, especially since my version will involve my own personal time travel, time travel fantasy, case in point. Let's imagine that I, the 2021 version of Oliver Kendall, knowing what I do now of the time since 2009, could go back to that year to some hypothetical meeting with then-President Obama, then-Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, and then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, and that in that meeting, I could spell out for them some of the bad-for-American-democracy things that will transpire over the next decade, some of which they could effectively head off at the pass if they were to pass some more serious structural reforms during the early days of the Obama presidency when the Democrats held the House and a Philip Russell-proof majority in the Senate. So here I am. It's 2009. I'm in a room with these three extremely powerful people who, unbeknownst to them, are about to blow a huge opportunity. Once I get over being massively starstruck and am able to somehow prove that I am, in fact, from the future, I would probably say something to them along the lines of, Mr. President, Madam Speaker, Mr. Leader, I know you have an impressive legislative policy agenda, saving the economy, healthcare." immigration, cap-and-trade, gun safety, new food policy, but there are some unsexy structural issues that need your attention before you move on to the policy stuff. Structural issues that, if left unaddressed, will help strangle most of that policy agenda in the cradle and represent a time bomb for American democracy. Here's just a taste of what's going to happen over the next decade or so, barring some structural reforms. So where should I start? Uh, okay. So early next year, in 2010, in a 5-4 decision that we've all come to know just as Citizens United, the Supreme Court will decide to basically declare money to be speech. This effectively wipes out most meaningful campaign finance laws, or at least creates workarounds for corporations and random rich people from wherever to pour as much money as they want into the political system as long as they launder it through dark money entities which will be able to insert themselves into the political process and, by the way, won't even have to disclose their donors unless Congress passes a law saying they do. 
So basically, some corporation can come out and say they're against, uh, let's say, sweatshops, then secretly dump millions of dollars into American patriots for affordable clothing or whatever, which will run a campaign saying that Jesus himself wore a hat knitted by starving kids in Bangladesh and run a shadow campaign in support of candidates who plan to roll back labor laws. The ability of Republicans to get almost unlimited cash from their wealthy backers is going to make the 2010 midterms a really tough hill to climb. A few years later, by the way, the Supreme Court is also going to completely gut Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, so you may want to do something to update that law to make it a bit more tamper-proof. It's worth noting, too, Mr. President, that although your attempts to stay above party politics are really admirable, you're leaving state Democratic parties completely unprepared for the midterms. Side note for my listeners, midterm elections are historically really rough for the party in office. In the 2010 midterm elections, for example, for a number of reasons, the Democrats get absolutely wiped out at the national level. Speaker Pelosi, I'm sorry to have to tell you that you're about to lose your job. Don't worry, though, you'll be back later. But the Democrats also lose a catastrophic number of seats in state legislatures. Since 2010 is a redistricting year, this leads to the massive gerrymandering of the U.S. House during the partisan redistricting process that takes place between the 2010 and 2012 elections, in which Republicans are able to tilt the playing field in their favor in terms of who controls the House. Dear listener, if you don't know what I'm talking about and would like to learn a bit more about the redistricting process, uh, please check out the October 28th, 2020 episode of this podcast called Avenging the Census. For the purposes of this episode, gerrymandering is when House districts are drawn in a way that specifically benefits one party, which is to say it basically guarantees that one party will end up with more seats regardless of the overall vote total. Okay, so back to the 2000 time meeting of my time travel fantasy. After the midterms, President Obama, Speaker Pelosi, and Leader Reid, the Republicans are going to continue to display the kind of innovation and zeal in designing strategies to win political power that they never seem quite able to do when it comes to designing policies that might actually help people. Besides gerrymandering the hell out of the House, the new GOP-controlled states will work hard to undercut the ability of Democrats to win through voter ID laws, which disproportionately target constituencies that usually vote for Democrats, and by crushing unions. Uh, it's worth noting that that Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, gave corporations and unions the right to spend unlimited resources on elections. Obviously, this intrinsically advantages Republicans already, because corporations, which have always tended to support Republicans more than Democrats, although that's a little more complicated now, certainly the Republican Party of 2021 would have you believe so, uh, corporations are usually more powerful than unions, which have traditionally tended to support Democrats. But the Republicans will work to further advantage themselves by taking steps wherever they can to uh, further weaken unions. Resulting from this and a few other factors, between the years of 2012 and 2018, it'll be almost mathematically impossible for Democrats to ever again regain control of the House, despite Democratic House candidates overall consistently winning more votes than Republican House candidates overall. On a related note, Continual population shifts will make the already comically unrepresentative Senate even more structurally unfair to Democrats. This will effectively end the Democratic legislative agenda for several electoral cycles, at a time when America, well, humanity really, is confronted by massive challenges and only one of America's two political parties seems to have any interest in solving them or even admitting they exist. So, bad. President Obama, Speaker Pelosi, Senator Reid... 
modest but meaningful healthcare reform and saving the economy, you'll get done. Congratulations and thank you, we're all better for it. But climate, gun safety, income inequality, immigration, the rest of your legislative priorities are done starting in 2011, and they'll stay on ice for almost a decade. You, Mr. President, will be reelected fairly easily, beating, by the way, a Republican that we all now fantasize about in comparison to where the party goes. But you'll spend the rest of your presidency fending off bullshit partisan investigations and attempting to get some of your legislative agenda through via executive orders, most of which will soon be overturned to disastrous effect. Furthermore, when, for a variety of reasons, the Republicans take back the Senate in 2014, they will proceed to block all of your judicial appointees up to and including the Supreme Court. The Republicans have understood for a long time, I'd say at least since Gingrich in the 90s, that if you work around the clock to mess up government, it's easier to then turn around to the next election and run on your party's traditional platform of being against government. I know you ran on a platform specifically of ending partisan bickering, Mr. President, but you don't have a partner here. Unbeknownst to you at this point, I don't think it gets reported out for at least another couple of years, Frank Luntz has already organized a dinner on the day of your inauguration, in fact, in which a whole bunch of Republican big shots brought Gingrich out of retirement to design a strategy of total opposition to you. During your term, Republicans take this strategy to an absurd degree. Since you promised bipartisanship, all they have to do to paint you as a failure is just say no. Furthermore, their base seems especially aggressive in their fear and hatred of you, something that will only grow over time with the emergence of the Tea Party movement. They call themselves teabaggers at first, but then presumably somebody tells them what that means and they change the name. I'll leave it to others to speculate what it is about you, President Obama, that gets uh, Republican base voters so much more worked into a frenzy than even previous Democratic presidents, but yeah, they're not going to warm up to you. So then, where does all that get us? Republicans take full advantage of various flaws in our democratic system to blunt the effectiveness of your presidency and give themselves a huge political advantage over what they'd actually have if their relative power reflected the actual support of a majority of Americans. In the election that decides who will succeed you, Mr. President, the structural problems that I've outlined will be in full effect. Also, the semi-success of the Republicans in undercutting your presidency combines in 2016 with a fracturing on the left and some really ugly cultural forces, both of which are going to be exacerbated by an extensive information warfare campaign by the Russian intelligence services to create an environment that is a whole lot less friendly to Democrats than it realistically ought to be, considering just how batshit insane the Republicans are going to become by then. As a result of those things, and some other factors that I'll skip over, and despite Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote by about 3 million, Donald Trump, yes, the you're fired guy from The Apprentice who spent the last couple decades running around New York covered in orange lead paint, is elected president. Now, I think at the moment, here in this meeting that, again, we are holding in the year 2009, Trump's actually a pro-choice, pro-gun control Democrat. But by the time 2016 rolls around, he's going to have refashioned himself into a buffoonish proto-fascist running on a platform of xenophobia and the sheer masochistic joy that comes from making politically correct liberal intellectuals' heads explode. His entire presidency will be an assault on everything we stand for, down to the basic concepts of truth, objective fact, enlightenment values, American democracy, the free press, basic English spelling and grammar. 
It'll basically be a giant cash grab by Trump and his spawn, resulting in untold damage to America's stability at home and prestige abroad, culminating in a violent insurrection at the Capitol building by lunatic Trump supporters that Trump managed to convince the election he loses in 2020 was rigged. Oh, and about half a million dead from a pandemic his administration will criminally mismanage after throwing out the playbook your administration will leave for them during the transition period. So, on that happy note, President Obama, Speaker Pelosi, Senator Reid, thank you so much for your time and for believing that I am in fact a time traveler from the year 2021. Please consider taking advantage of the temporarily huge legislative majorities that you have to rectify some of the structural problems that are leading to the events that I just described. Also, sorry to ask, would you all sign my t-shirt? I'm sure that listeners who know me or who have heard an episode or two of this show before are aware that were I actually given the chance to go back to 2009 and talk to these folks, I certainly wouldn't be able to restrain myself to just a couple minutes of bashing the Trump presidency. But as I do a more comprehensive summary of bad things that happened during the Trump administration in a January 21st episode called Trump's Presidency is Over, Here's Why We Can't Forget, I decided I'd spare you all and just say please check out that episode if you haven't already heard it. Hey everybody, before we continue with the episode, I just wanted to take a second to ask you, if you haven't already, to please subscribe to the podcast, and if you're feeling really charitable, to share it with some other people you think might like it. That way you won't miss an episode, and as the show is just getting off the ground, it's really helpful for getting the word out to other potential listeners. Thanks. Okay, now back to the disaster that is American politics. Okay, so now that we're safely out of my imagination and back on the firm-ish ground of 2021, let's recap some of the problems that I laid out there in my little monologue. That's to say, unlimited campaign spending because of the terrible Supreme Court decision in Citizens United, partisan gerrymandering, voter suppression, and the Senate. Now, those certainly aren't the only problems that exist in American democracy, but they are some of the main ones. Also, I don't have the resources or energy to lay out everything that's broken in our political system, and today I didn't feel like talking about just how stupid the Electoral College is. But let's get a little bit deeper on the four things that I did mention, and some things that might be done about them. So, first to Citizens United and our overall incredibly messed up campaign finance system. Citizens United itself, the court decision that is, won't be able to be done away with short of a constitutional amendment or a brand new Supreme Court, neither of which unfortunately are in the cards. At the moment, anyway. Also, in an ideal world, we'd probably just have public financing of elections so that our political leaders are incentivized to spend their time governing rather than furiously dialing up rich people to beg for cash. Something that nobody likes any more than you like receiving the endless stream of fundraising emails that clog up all of our inboxes all the time now. Except Mitch McConnell, who is really good at getting donors to slip Benjamins into the gaps in his shell and reportedly loves doing so. Yes, I know, another McConnell is a turtle joke. But Congress could hypothetically pass laws that at least somewhat mitigate the damage done by Citizens United. They could require donors to super PACs to be disclosed, for example, so that we could at least know who's bankrolling the shadowy campaign entities that have come to become so involved in our political process. As for partisan gerrymandering, the Supreme Court has largely whiffed on this, but some lower courts have in some cases, although not in others, stepped in to overturn particularly egregiously gerrymandered congressional districts, especially ones that were plainly done with voters' race in mind. Some states, like California and Michigan, have passed referendums mandating that districts be redrawn through some nonpartisan process rather than by whatever party happens to dominate the legislature at a particular moment in time. 
But this is an issue that's ripe for action by Congress. Most states still draw their districts through a partisan process, which has had a terrible impact on our democracy. In states where one party is powerful at the state level, we really have arrived at a place where politicians choose their voters and not the other way around. Only a fraction of House seats are actually estimated to be at all competitive, meaning that politicians of both parties have way more to fear from a primary challenge from a less experienced, more extreme Democrat or Republican in their own party than they do from the other party in the general election. That is a perfect recipe for polarization and inaction. Next, how about voter suppression? <laughs> yes, yes, how about voter suppression? Probably should have worded that differently. Sounds like I was doing what I, a role play of how I imagine a GOP electoral strategy to sound. I'm leaving it in. Okay, <laughs> so uh, democracy is quite simply losing this battle at the moment. In an earlier episode called The Democrats versus the Anti-Democrats, I get into some basic history of voter suppression and how Republicans were working to suppress the vote leading into the 2020 election. Since the 2020 election, which they lost, Republican-controlled states have acted in unison to introduce a raft of bills to restrict voting rights in really almost every state. Everybody heard the, the most hilariously bad-sounding example which is to say Georgia Republicans getting revenge for having lost uh, both Senate seats by making it illegal to give water to people waiting in Georgia's famously long voting lines. But the Georgia law goes well beyond this one stupid headline to a bunch of really dark stuff like basically giving the legislature the power to overturn the results of the election if they don't like how it turned out. Texas and Arizona, by the way, are not far behind. Now, this is an area where Congress could certainly step in to protect voting rights nationally, and really, really should. Finally, the U.S. Senate. So, the almost comical unfairness of how Americans are represented in the upper chamber of our national legislature has, I think, been widely overlooked in favor of sexier political stories for a while. But we've arrived at a truly absurd moment in terms of how the Senate works. I'm just talking about who gets to be in it. I'm not even touching how the body functions on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay, so each state gets two senators. All right, I understand why, per the framers' logic of a couple centuries ago. But I don't think that the framers imagined or that they would think that it continues to make sense up to this absurd point where we find ourselves today. The roughly 575,000 people of Wyoming get two votes in the U.S. Senate. The roughly 39,510,000 people of California also get two votes in the Senate. Seriously, if you want to get the population of California, take the population of Wyoming and add 39 million. In other words, one Wyomingite, had to look that up, is worth about 69 Californians in terms of their Senate representation. That's not a knock on Wyoming or the people from there. It's not like it's their fault. It's just a flagrant example of how unbelievably unfair the Senate is. The 50 Democrats in the Senate right now represent tens of millions more votes than do the 50 Republicans in the Senate right now. Are we noticing a pattern? Democrats earn the votes of millions more Americans than the other party does, yet because of bad luck with built-in flaws to the democracy, are lucky if they manage to scrape a victory by the skin of their teeth. And it's getting worse, fast. Uh, according to numbers from the Wall Street Journal that were highlighted in the Washington Post, we're on track to have 30% of the overall population controlling 70% of the Senate in 20 years. That's insane, and it's not sustainable. So about 100 years ago, the Brits in the House of Commons effectively marginalized the House of Lords, their version of the Senate. 
and in so doing became the modern democracy we recognize today. I guess it's handy sometimes to, as the Brits do, simply not have a constitution, although maybe having one would have prevented them from shooting themselves in the foot in the form of the spectacular own goal that is Brexit. Not getting sucked down that rabbit hole except to say that that was dumb and they shouldn't have done it. Moving past the mess of mixed metaphors that I just made, God, now alliteration, what's happening to me? Okay, <laughs> yeesh, the U.S. won't be able to so easily just get rid of the Senate or do something about the fact that states with, like, ten people have the same representation as do states with more than that. Uh, but we could make its overall composition a bit more representative of the population as a whole by, for example, giving statehood and thus conferring voting representation on the millions of American people who live in D.C. and Puerto Rico, both of which, especially Puerto Rico, are populations of Americans that are quite a bit larger than some of America's smallest states, but right now have precisely zero voting representation in Congress compared with the two whole Senate seats held by every single one of even the tiniest American states. People from D.C. D.C. Ians? Why, I'm really struggling with demonyms today. And Puerto Ricans, okay, that one I knew, are just as American as I am and deserve to be treated as such. The dark implications of leaving Americans without proper representation in government became especially clear after the horrific mismanagement of the recovery in Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria a couple years back. Every, everything about that, by the way, was way, way worse than what happened in the Bush administration's tragic mishandling of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans a decade and a half ago. But now, just a couple years after Hurricane Maria, everything from the thousands of dead Americans in Puerto Rico to Trump tossing paper towels into a crowd of hurricane victims and then tweeting insults at the mayor of San Juan while her city was underwater, has just been memory hold as another Tuesday under America's worst president. I rather doubt that even the comically incompetent Trump administration would have so comprehensively abandoned some of our own people if those people were properly represented in Congress. If you doubt that, just take a look at the more normal level of seriousness with which Trump responded around the same time to a much smaller hurricane that hit part of Texas. At the very least, I don't recall him saying, No, I hate to tell you, Texas, but you've thrown our budget a little out of whack, because we spent a lot of money on Texas. And then thinking about trying to sell Texas, which he both said and did in the case of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, and neither of which I imagine he would have done if Puerto Rico had two senators and a proportional number of House seats. I think I'll leave the first part of this multi-part episode there, as I've discussed some of the biggest structural problems facing American democracy and begun hinting at some of the ways of mitigating them. In the next installment, I'll talk, as I mentioned at the top, with Julia Bryan, the Global Chair of Democrats Abroad. I think we're likely to go a bit further into the more concrete details of things being considered to address some of these dangers, and since it wouldn't be an OK Talks episode unless it's at least somewhat pessimistic and depressing, I'll probably end up talking about some of the impediments that could derail those much-needed reforms. So then, that's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, especially now, so you'll be sure to get the next installment of this bigger episode on democracy reform. Also, please, please, share the podcast with anyone you know who's interested in American politics, or just likes to have some background noise while they're trying to fall asleep. 
You sharing this around really does help with the reach and I appreciate it. Speaking of appreciation, as always, I want to thank my friend Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork. Until the next installment of this episode, thanks for listening and my congratulations to all my friends stateside who have already gotten the vaccine and of whom I am now immensely jealous and yeah, okay, hitting the red button now. <laughs>